chapter 33. So if you have your Bibles, please meet me in Psalm 33. text reads like this. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Amen. Amen. So much of our world is built upon right conduct and rule following that we expect those who uphold this very law to be doing so in a fair and a righteous way. The problem is, and this problem that we constantly run into, is that we live inside of a sinful world where all of mankind is affected by this sin. This means that we shouldn't be surprised when these officials who are meant to be upholding the law fail because of their own sinful practices. One such instance of judges failing to uphold the law took place back in 2008 in the state of Pennsylvania when two judges, Michael Conahan and Mark Ciavarella, were exposed for their corruption. Both judges worked in the juvenile courts, hearing cases from teenagers who were committing crimes. The role of the juvenile courts is very important, being a last opportunity for most young defendants to be put on the right path. 
But both Conahan and Ciavarella were both known for pronouncing incredibly harsh sentences on these teenage defendants, usually sentencing them to long-term prison sentences in juvenile detention facilities for the smallest of crimes, including mocking an assistant principal on social media and trespassing in an abandoned building. People were starting to notice these tough sentences being uh, handed down and wondering why this was happening. This is when it was discovered that both judges had ties to a for-profit juvenile detention facility that was built in their district, shining light onto what is known as the Kids for Cash scandal. You see, when Conahan was president judge of the Middle District of Pennsylvania Courts back in 2002, he used his authority to remove funding from the state-operated facility and started to pour that money into privately operated facilities. It was discovered in 2008 that both judges were receiving payouts for each kid that they were sentencing to these facilities, and over time, gaining them millions of dollars. So not only were they dealing out unfair sentences to these teenagers, but they were profiting off of every teen that they sent to prison as well. When all of this was revealed, the two judges were brought to court and were ready to sign a plea deal that had given them only about a seven-year prison sentence for their crimes. The judge presiding over this case threw this plea deal out, thinking that seven years was way too light a sentence for ruining so many kids' lives. When all was said and done, Conahan was sentenced to 17 and a half years in prison, and Ciavarella was sentenced to 28 years in prison, one of the harshest punishments dealt to a judge in all of history. These two men, who were supposed to be dealing out justice, received the punishment that they deserved for their crimes, while the many kids that they sent to prison were given harsh trials, many of them were brought back for a retrial with their verdicts being overturned. Justice was served. Whenever we hear about crazy corruption stories like this, our hearts yearn to hear that justice has been served. We hear a story of two judges who ruined so many children's lives. Of course, we will want to know that these wicked men were punished for their crimes. We have this desire for justice, not because true justice is one of the biggest upheld virtues in our society, but also because justice, it is a desire that has been written on our hearts by the God who created us. Our God, the creator of all things, has made us in his very image. We are like him in so many ways. And by looking at the scriptures that declare to us this truth, we can know that this desire on our hearts for justice comes directly from God. That is because our God is just. He is the perfect standard of justice. He delivers punishment for the unrighteous fairly while upholding the righteous. And one day he will completely trample out all evil from this world. 
So tonight, as we continue in our series studying the attributes of God through the Psalms, we will be looking at how our God is just. Looking ahead, we will be looking at God's authoritative justice and why he has this authority to serve justice. We will be then looking at God's righteous justice or what God's standard for righteousness is really like. And then finally, we will look at God's enacted justice and what it means for us as the life, for us in the life of the Christian. Let us then look at how our God is just together here in Psalm 33, starting with his authoritative justice. Let's start with the, verse, with the first uh, nine verses of this passage. Reading it again, it says, shout for, joy, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Psalm 33 begins with the psalmist moving the congregation to praise the Lord. What is interesting about Psalm 33 in particular is that we do not know much of the context for why this psalm was written, other than it being for the people of God to praise the Lord. This is because this psalm is one of a couple of psalms in the Psalter that does not have a heading. Some older manuscripts have connected Psalm 33 with Psalm 32, mostly because the, the final verse of Psalm 32 has David exhorting the readers to be glad in the Lord, to rejoice, to shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So thematically, this does connect our two psalms pretty well, specifically around the ideas of thanksgiving and praise. So then our psalm here begins with us as readers being moved to praise the Lord and with Psalm 32 in the back of our minds because of our forgiveness in the Lord. The Lord is deserving of our praise because this is the right response for us as sinners to having our own sins forgiven. And this worship isn't just some worship that we do out of excess, but our skilled and thoughtful worship. Our psalmist is calling us to praise the Lord with the skills that God has given us, allowing us to offer to him a new song of praise. This act of praising and worshiping God is then not out of a sense of obligation like, uh, this isn't out of a sense of obligation like sending a thank you card to someone, who af to someone after you've received a gift from them. Instead, our worship of God is genuine and well thought out being out of love for God and his character, giving him the worship that is due to him because of his character and his works, which the psalmist outlines here in the next couple of verses. We then look to God's character as a reason for us to be praising him. 
God's character is righteous, which means that all the works that he has accomplished is out of love and faithfulness towards his people. Flowing then out of the love for his people is the desire to see justice and righteousness carried out in this world. Our God is righteousness personified. And if we are created in the image of God, we are meant to personally reflect and share in this righteousness. This means then that our God is working in this world to make sure that righteousness and justice are upheld. All so that the earth may be filled with the steadfast love of the Lord. The psalmist then moves to talk about the works of God. Specifically his work of creating the heavens and the earth. What is interesting here about this particular description of God's creation, as one commentator points out, is the way that the psalmist uses both positive and negative terms in his description. The creation of heaven is described using positive terms, while the creation of earth is then used as the containing of negative forces, with God bringing order out of this chaos. This particular commentator writes, The great negative force is the dynamic power of the waters that surround the land, reside in the heavens and lie under the land, all of which can overwhelm the land with floods when let loose. Creation meant Yahweh containing these terrifying forces by means of the sky and the land. But what is also so interesting about this particular description is the word, the Hebrew word that is translated here as heap. You see, some early church fathers, such as Jerome, pointed out that this word also implies the word bottle, which is meant to show that God containing these waters inside of creation, this incredibly mighty act, was as easy for him as filling up a bottle. Since our God, then, has perfect character, being upright and faithful, loving righteousness and justice, and also being awesome in power, creating the whole world with simplicity and ease, we then, as people, should be standing in awe of him. Our God is the authoritative one because he is the one who is above all things. The psalmist says that all the earth should fear the Lord because of those two things alone. For us then tonight, as we are thinking about our God being just, we need to be looking toward the Lord, looking to him and recognizing that he has the authority to uphold righteous justice in this world. Out of love, our God has created everything in this world. And also out of love, he maintains and executes justice in this world through his power. One key to thinking about God holding the authority to rule over this world and execute his justice is found in how we think about our God as Father. In thinking about God as Father and us as his children, we realize that our Father is standing to protect us and look after us just like our Father should be doing for us. If while we were growing up, there was someone who was treating us wrong or unfairly, our fathers are meant to stand up for us and help what is just to be carried out. 
This also includes if we are the ones doing the wrong thing in the first place. Our fathers are meant to discipline us for our mistakes because, we, because they have the authority to work out justice over our lives. The same, if not more so true, more so is true of our heavenly father's relationship toward us. He is upholding and issuing justice in this world, not only because he himself is just, but also out of the love and care that he has for us as his people. Now, I recognize that not everyone in this room may have a great relationship with their father. Please know that our heavenly father is not like this. He, is, he will not abandon you. He has not left you. Our Heavenly Father is going to continue loving you and taking care of you and issuing his justice for both your sake and for the sake of this world. So whether you had an amazing father, the perfect picture of uh, an earthly father, or you had the worst father this world has ever seen, I, I issue you a challenge this evening. Trust in our Heavenly Father's authority. Our Heavenly Father holds this authority to issue justice and his motivation is marvelously pure. It is not out of selfishness for himself, but is out of love for us as his people. So trust in him. Now after looking at why God has the authority to execute this justice in the world, we now turn to see how God's righteous judges, justice and how God's righteous standard are carried out in this world. Picking back up in verse 10, we will read through verse, uh, we'll read through verse 15. Or, yeah, we will read through verse 15. The Lord be- brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes their deeds. When mankind starts to create their own standard of righteousness and then serve out justice according to that standard, Mankind is always fighting a losing battle. Anytime culture tries to come up with a new standard of righteousness, this standard will never be as holistic because it will be containing so many contradictions leading eventually to the crumble and fading away of this standard. We may think that we as men know what we are doing when we are coming up with laws that will help govern this land. But as people, we are too, sh- we are too short-sighted and often miss these gaping holes in our seemingly perfect moral standard. This is why laws are always changing in this country and are constantly changing to meet whatever moral standard this nation is demanding. And this ultimately will be why nations and states will never last forever. Our God is the reason why man's standard will never last. 
Because our God is perfect in character. He has already established what the perfect standard of righteousness is. Meaning that we as mankind do not have to worry about this creation of this standard. The true and perfect standard for righteousness. The one that is, that is perfect. The one our God has created is written on the hearts of us as men. The true standard is proclaimed all over scripture. Uh, we see this particularly in Romans 2, 14 and 15 when Paul writes, Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not live, who do not have the law, do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. So then, to quote author Christopher Ashe, just as a scientist does not invent physical order but discovers it, so we do not invent morality, but rather discover in the Bible the morality that has been given to us by a good God. Now, for those of you who do not immediately believe that this, this idea that morality is discovered but, and, and believe that it could be created, there may be some objections to how the standard of righteousness hasn't changed very much over history. We still think, th- we still think that things like murder, stealing, cheating, lying, among other things, are bad. So our culture's morality hasn't changed that much, right? I would staunchly argue against that thought. Observe the ways in which something as simple as our own etiquette has evolved over the past century. Here are a couple of quotes that I read from an etiquette book back dating to the 1920s, specifically about how we are supposed to greet each other in church. After this, I'll let you tell me if our culture's standard of righteousness is or is not transient in nature. Here are two pieces of advice from the 1920s about church etiquette. The first is, people do not greet each other in church except at a wedding. At weddings, people do speak to friends sitting near them, but in a low tone of voice. It would be shocking to enter a church and hear a babble of voices. (laughs) And the second is this. Ordinarily in church, if a friend happens to catch your eye, you smile but never actually bow. If you go to a church not your own and a stranger offers you a seat in her pew, you should, on leaving, turn to her and say thank you. But do not greet anyone until you are out on the church steps. When you naturally speak to your friends, or specifically when you naturally speak to your friends, hello should not be said on this occasion because it is too familiar for the solemnity of church surroundings. It's it's silly. (laughs) I can tell you full well that if this is what the standard of righteousness and right conduct is, then we as Hoylake Evangelical Church are in some serious trouble. Man's standards are way too transient to be upheld in this world as the standard of righteousness. We then must rely solely on God's righteous standard. 
if we were going to hold to any standard at all. We cannot come up with anything that will ever be as great as the law that God has already placed upon our hearts. The Lord who is reigning from the heavens, who sits enthroned above all without any opposition, has fashioned our very hearts with the law which is already written upon them. So let us hold to the true righteous standard that God has already established and given to us. But before the psalmist moves on to the next point in the psalm, he gives us an important clarification that we need to be meditating on. Our psalmist gives us a couple of metaphors that are clarifying where our hope should be when thinking about God's righteous standard. He says in verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 33, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and, it's, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. We should not be confused when thinking about this standard of righteousness. When we look at this standard, we should not, think, we should not look at it and think that us meeting this standard will grant us any form of salvation. If we were to look at the law and think that we could perfectly follow every letter of this law, we would be absolutely crazy and incredibly arrogant. As inhabitants of this sinful world, we are constantly falling into sin every day. We are not righteous and will never be righteous according to our own strength. And every bit of this law shows us where we fall short of this righteousness not meeting this standard that God has set out for us to meet. The law cannot offer us deliverance because we can never follow the law properly. When we think about this law, we need to be recognizing that we fall short of righteousness. This then should cause us to come to God and ask for the forgiveness of our sins. Our God has given us the opportunity to be free from this punishment because of the work of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection and ascension into heaven. This is the exact reason we celebrate Holy Week and Easter Sunday in the first place. As people who fall short of God's righteous standard of the law, we were deserving of punishment for our unrighteousness. But God, but God in his infinite mercy sent to us a savior in his son, Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life following and obeying every letter of the law without a sinful mistake, being the true personification of righteousness. And despite Christ's perfection, he was put to death on a cross so that he could take the punishment for our sins in our place. He died so that we would not have to, and then rose victoriously over death and ascended into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us on our behalf. Our God has paved a way to forgiveness so that when we are judged by the law, we can receive grace through Christ's work. God has the authority and the power 
to deliver righteous justice upon us. But he has also given us grace so that we would not be separated from him forever. Now that we have looked at God's righteous standard and what this means for our lives, let us now look at God's enacted justice. Picking back up in verse 18, we will then read through the end of the psalm. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Finally, our psalmist closes out this psalm by talking about the way in which God's mercy, but also the subtext of God's justice, acts here in this world. He begins by talking about the blessing for those who hope in the Lord. The one who is fearing in the Lord and hoping in his steadfast love and that their soul will be delivered from death, that, that their soul will be delivered from death and it will be kept alive in famine. God is extending his mercy through love to his people. Those who are in communion with God have received this pardon from their sin and have therefore received pardon from the punishment that they deserve. While not expressly stated in the psalm, the subtext in this is saying that those who do not love the Lord, who do not know him, do not share in the same mercy. Their soul is reserved for death. There is no deliverance of mercy for the one who does not know God. But there is deliverance of justice for their transgressions. They have accrued a debt that has not been paid for and must face the righteous justice that God will deliver unto them. Now, there is a great connection between these last couple of verses, specifically verses 18 and 19, with verses 16 and 17. To quote another commentator, he says, People who rely on strength, might, and Calvary do not find rescue, because the key to rescue lies in that watching eye, expressive of divine commitment. On the human side, the key to rescue thus lies not in the culmination of, of those resources, but in an attitude of revering and waiting. So then what are we to do? Our psalmist tells us that we should wait on the Lord and wait for our final deliverance from this world. We must trust in God, for this is where we will find true peace from the troubles that this world throws at us. Our God, in his word, assures us that his justice will be enacted throughout the whole world. There will be no person who receives judgment that will not be deserving of their judgment. All evildoers will receive just punishment, and all of God's people will receive mercy and deliverance, not because of nepotism, but because of grace and mercy. Because our God has promised this very thing to happen. 
we then pray that God's love be upon us so that we can put our hope and our trust in him so that we may trust in his promise. We then as Christians need to be hopefully waiting upon the Lord with faithful endurance rather than panic action. We are to wait on the Lord. Then we are, uh, uh, sorry, if we are to wait on the Lord, then we are acting in submission to his power and his promises. We are acknowledging that his justice will be enacted like he has promised that it would be. But if we do not wait on the Lord and we panic constantly, then we are relying too much on our own strength and power. Only the heart that is glad in God and trusts in his holy name will be able to find hope and peace in God's justice. So as we close our time tonight here in Psalm 33 on this Easter Sunday, I would like to give you one more reminder about God's justice. Specifically, that God's justice has already been enacted on your behalf. Christ's death on the cross is the punishment for our sins that we were all deserving of. We deserved this death and deserved to be completely forsaken and cut off from our God because of our sins. But because Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, died sacrificially for us on the cross, we have been given new life and have been wiped clean from our sins. Those whom Christ saved are no longer standing in judgment, for only the wicked stand in the judgment. But those who are in Christ share in his holiness. They have been washed clean and no longer themselves stand as wicked, but stand as holy. God has given us as believers new hearts so that we no longer have to be wicked and sinful, but are now holy and righteous through our union with Christ. God's justice was properly delivered, but was delivered on the Son on the Christian's behalf so that believers may be with God and enjoy him forever. So church, let me exhort you. Call upon Christ as your savior. He has paid the price for your debt. He has fully paid the price for your debt. Accept his offer of mercy and fall at the foot of the cross, proclaiming his name forevermore. Amen. Let's pray.